Hello, everybody. I'm Kevin Witham. Welcome to Season 4 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus prayed for unity so that the world may believe. Our mission is to connect and gather with Christians outside one's family of churches because we believe unity starts by building relationships. We say unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another conversation. Hello and welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. I'm really excited about this conversation today. We're going to be talking with Matt Michelados and Kathy Kong. Matt Michelados is an author, screenwriter, and speaker. He's the author of Journey to Love and the young adult fantasy series, The Sunlit Lands. He has written for Today.com, Time Magazine, Relevant, Nature, Writer's Digest, and Daily Science Fiction, among others. Kathy Kong is a writer, speaker, and yoga teacher. Her journey began in childhood diaries and journals, moved into newsrooms, and then turned toward writing. She is the co-author of More Than Serving Tea and the author of Raise Your Voice. Welcome, Matt and Kathy. Thanks, Thank Drew. you. So tell us where y'all are recording from this morning. Uh, I'm in my daughter's bedroom in uh, Portland, Oregon area is where I am. <laughs> and I am at home in the north suburbs of Chicago. Excellent. I am coming from North Carolina, so we kind of got the, the whole country covered here. Yeah. Great. And, uh, just wonderful to be able to talk with y'all. So y'all just co-authored this book that came out last week, correct? That's uh, right. Yes. Yes. And it is called Loving Disagreement. And I am just really excited about the the topic here because Common Grounds Unity, our organization, is really focused on trying to bring people together in unity but we live in a world that, you know, we tend to disagree a lot. So uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit, and uh, let's start with Kathy. Explain the title, Loving Disagreement, and how'd you come, a, come to that, and how's it different from other types of disagreement? Well, the title was actually one of the last things that we uh, agreed on as we were in the writing process, <laughs> which like any book, you kind of have a, an idea of the topic. Um, maybe you have a working title. And then as we're writing kind of form uh, a title that works to bring all of the ideas together. So we landed on loving disagreement, one, because it's a little bit of a play on words. Um, I don't know how many of us actually love disagreement, um, but we might be able to enter loving or more loving into disagreement. So that's how we ended up with that title. And we hope that it... Uh, spark some curiosity amongst people who see the title and see the book. Absolutely. It definitely uh, caught my attention. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the format of this book. I, I don't read too many books that are laid out this way. So uh, Matt, tell me a little bit about the format and uh, why you did it the way you did. Well, Kathy and I, once we realized we we're going to write this together, neither of us particularly enjoy the books where the authors try to merge their voice into one. So you'd start a story saying like, I, parentheses, Matt, live in Portland, Oregon, you know, and then you do your your little thing throughout the chapter. It's confusing. And part of the perk of this book is that there's two voices. We're talking about how we agree and disagree well. So we we're like, well, how do we do that? And we started talking about sidebars, interviews, things like that. And where we landed was uh, each chapter, one of us writes the bulk of the chapter. 
And then the other responds with their own thoughts, insights, questions. Uh, and so it becomes a conversation in each chapter. And I think, I mean, it's super fun to write that way. Uh, and from what we're hearing from readers, it's really enjoyable to read too. Absolutely. I, I have really enjoyed that format. And I love especially how, you know, after it's it's almost like I'm eavesdropping on a conversation <laughs> over coffee and y'all are just having this conversation and, you know, mad after you say something, Kathy's like, huh, I'm interested about what you said there. And um, I love the questions and how y'all respond to each other's point of view through questions. Uh, talk a little bit about how questions shape a loving disagreement and what's the difference between a helpful question and, a, and one that's more damaging. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. So I'd like to think, I would like to think that as uh, Christians, as believers, and just as human beings, that we can enter into a relationship, into a community with a sense of curiosity that we yeah. want to get to know other people and learn from their points of view and their experiences with a full understanding that it could be very different than ours. And it could even um, cause some tension because those viewpoints or experiences are so different. But I think that is uh, the dance around helpful or damaging questions is that balance between intent and impact. Hmm. And I don't know if we have enough experience in that. I know for me, and Matt, you can answer this as well, having grown up kind of evangelical, evangelical spaces, there wasn't a lot of room for questioning. Hmm. And so that skill for me was developed as I trained to be a journalist and ask questions to draw the other person's story out as opposed to creating questions that are either yes or no, or very much in line with my worldview. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, it kind of leads into something I was going to talk about later, but let's jump into that. The, uh, in the first chapter, the two of you have a discussion about race. And Kathy, you shared about how hurtful it can be uh, when people ask you where you're from. Uh, if you're listening and not seeing, uh, Kathy is Korean American. Um, and people will ask questions as a way to point out differences instead of finding common ground. And these kind of questions often expose an assumption that to be American means to be white. Um, so the question being, where are you from? You know, I'm from Chicago. Like, no, no, really, really, where are you from? And the assumption they're exposing is, no, but Americans are, are white and you're not. So it's kind right. of a, so kind of alienating. This experience is alienating. Um and so there's that difference between intent. If somebody's not intending to alienate you, that's what's received. How do you balance those two, or, or not balance, but how do you address, yes, I, I can understand that you intended this, but that's not how I'm receiving it. How do, you, how do you engage in that conversation? Well, you know, I'll be honest. Sometimes I feel a little prickly and I will push the person asking me that question when it does go to the second or third round. Like, you know, I'll answer. I am from the Chicagoland area. This is actually where I've been for most of my life. And they'll say, no, no, no. Like, where are you really from? And I'll say, oh, well, the specific suburb is, right? So I'm, I am pushing them to ask me the question that they really want to ask, which is, what is your ethnicity? Where does your family originally come from? 
Um, And that also is a loaded question, right? Because I don't know the person's intent. I can hope that they're trying to make a point of connection, but immediately that's a point of difference, right? That I couldn't possibly be from here. And so sometimes when I'm prickly, I, I get into a little adversarial back and forth. But ultimately, I will say, oh, I was born in Korea and immigrated to the United States. Why do you ask? Right. So again, I am inviting the other person to um, interrogate themselves. Why is it that you're asking me this? Why do you have to do three rounds of this question? Where are we really <laughs> going with this? Um, right. And and I, I will say, I still get that question. And my children, who are all born in the U.S., and on their father's side, they are third generation now. There is no other place they are from except Wisconsin, where they were born. Yeah. <laughs> right? They have no connection, maybe culturally, maybe with their names, but that idea that they have some connection with the land of Korea raises up all sorts of other things. Yeah. I think what's interesting is if you flipped it, right? Um, if someone came up to me and said, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Greece. And they're like, you're from Greece? I said, yeah. They're like, how old were you when you came over? I was like, I, what? What do you mean when I came over? Uh, they're like, yeah, how old were you when you came from Greece? Oh, no, I didn't come from Greece. Oh, your dad came from Greece? No, no, no. My dad was born in Chicago. They're like, but I want to know where you're from. I was like, I told you. You know, my grandfather, he came over from Greece. We're Greek. Uh, people would be very confused by that. But they do the flip side with people of color, um, uh, particularly Asian-American people. Uh, Like, right, you're probably not going to say that to a Native American person because your assumption is probably they're from America somewhere. And people typically don't ask this of black people because uh, the answer is often, well, my great grandfather was enslaved by someone maybe you're related to. I don't know. And then I ended up here and I'm not sure where I'm from. Uh, And nobody wants that conversation. So Asian Americans in particular uh, tend to get this question more than other uh, racial and ethnic identities, which is pretty fascinating. So one of the things that, um, you know, I have a question for Kathy is, you know, my wife and I lived in Korea for a year and, and then just fell in love with the culture there. And we miss, it's been 20 years, but we really miss the, the culture we experienced in Korea. Um, so assume that you and I are in a setting where making small talk with strangers is not out of place. Um, so it's not like I'm chasing you down on the street. Um, but I see you and wonder if there's a Korean connection that we could bond over. Uh, what is your advice to me in that moment before I say or do anything? What would you <laughs> caution me towards or advise me? Sure. So I think I would wonder if you also come from um, a space in Christianity that assumes that we are all first Christians and two, that we are colorblind, yeah. right? And so. Mm. I've met many Christians who want to say I'm colorblind, and yet that point of connection is then my ethnicity, which is obvious because I look different. All right, so again, I'm inviting other people to kind of question themselves, is my understanding consistent? And my um, willingness to see how these questions can be othering in one space, but then we demand unity in another. Um, And to you, I would say, well, so with a stranger, why that bond? Is it to make you comfortable or is it to make me comfortable? 
right? Yeah. And and that is what I find fascinating because mostly that bond isn't necessarily comfortable for me, right? I came to the U.S. when I was eight months old. I have lived here my entire life. <laughs> and, and I am also learning and in conversation with so many Korean adoptees who hmm. get asked this question. And that is an activation, a trigger for them, because the assumption is they ought to know something just by the way we look. Right. And that's, again, reserved for people of color. Yeah, that, that's excellent point. And that's interesting, too, because Matt brings up a, a, the other side about his Greek heritage kind of gets uh, ignored or and also Irish ignored mm-hmm. and just assumed into a white blandness. So um, when people see you, they just say, oh, he's white. There's nothing interesting there. <laughs> um, that also is an assumption based on appearances. Uh, Matt, how, how do you, have you responded to that or how have you experienced that in your life? Um, maybe pros and cons of being assumed you're just, just white. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is how recent some what were at one time ethnic minorities have been adopted into whiteness. So for instance, my grandfather, who was Greek, was not considered white. He was Greek, uh, which means when he married my grandmother, who was Irish, it was a cross-racial marriage. Uh, People looked at that as interracial, uh, and there was conflict and difficulty because of that. Now, that is not true for me. I've been treated the vast majority of the time as white, um, which has meant that some cultural and things about my own heritage have been set aside to embrace whiteness. So, for instance, my last name, which I told you, Drew, to pronounce it Michelotis. That's how I pronounce it. That's how my whole family pronounces it. That is not the Greek way to pronounce it. Um, Why? Because it's so much easier for people. It's already four syllables. It is asking so much for someone to actually pronounce it correctly, including myself. So we don't do that. Um, Also, it's fascinating. Whiteness can actually be repealed. It can be removed from people. And I have experienced that a few times. Uh, The most notable being after 9-11, my, quote, foreign name got me pulled out of TSA lines constantly every single time I flew after 9-11. Uh, Because I was no longer white in that moment, right? I was potentially part of this uh, Muslim foreign something. Uh, So I was moved into another category, which, uh, you know, small comparatively. But yeah, the the totality of my ethnic identity as a Greek person has really been moved into one weekend a year, which is the Greek festival uh, at the local Greek Orthodox church where we go and we eat Greek food and we watch people Greek dance and we pay for a raffle ticket to hopefully go to the motherland and see Greece for free. (laughs) Um, but, but that's it. That's all of my Greekness. And from a guy whose grandfather was from Greece, uh, and in two generations, less than two generations, our entire ethnic heritage has basically been erased, uh, in favor of whiteness, which means, uh, a variety of privileges and uh, perks within American culture. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you. That That is very enlightening. Um, it sounds like on, on both sides, there is this, uh, the, the roots in here is assuming you know somebody 
based on appearances and not letting that arise instead of asking questions that draw people out. Like you were talking about Kathy, just slapping a label on somebody who's like, Oh, I already know what kind of person that is. But instead saying, you know what you tell me. And I think this goes, you know, all across the board, you know, talking politics, you voted for this person. I already know, you know, what you care about, what you don't care about. You voted for this other person I already know. And so throughout all this, we got to set pause and, Take a deep breath. I think, Kathy, you're the one that mentioned that is you know, taking that yep. deep breath and, yes. and just, you know, let's Kathy let's often encourages that. It's a good reminder. <laughs> yeah. um, but assuming that we're, we're all going to do things that offend other people, that sure. brings up the question about forgiveness. Why, what, why is forgiveness so important when engaging in a loving disagreement? And what does that look like? I don't know. Uh, I feel like you need to ask my husband of 30 years. <laughs> what does that look like? Um, he has forgiven me for many offenses over three decades. Um, you know, again, I will say it. Uh, forgiveness is something that as Christians we value um, and maybe value so much because we're really uncomfortable with disagreement. And we are uncomfortable with the reality that we have hurt people. And so we want to rush to forgiveness. And so I think forgiveness is important because it is what the basis of our faith is, right? That we have been forgiven and that we should extend that to others. I think my problem with forgiveness is when it is demanded of us or expected right. of us in a time frame when the person who was offended is not ready to offer up that forgiveness. What do you think, Matt? Yeah. I mean, for sure, forgiveness can be used as a, a weapon, right? Like we see this sometimes mm-hmm. in the church with yes. people who have experienced sexual assault, for instance, and they're told like, mm-hmm. oh, you need to get past this and forgive the person who assaulted you, who is still in this congregation and st- still in power, you know, or something like that. Or we, we saw that in the, um, the, well, we see this in multiple places and not just sexual assault, many different types of uh, uncomfortable or immoral behavior, especially from people in leadership uh, that were pushed toward forgiveness in a negative way. In the positive way, there is power in forgiveness uh, that when I disagree with someone and they harm me, the ability to forgive them begins to remove their ability to compound the harm, if that makes sense. It's good for them too. Um, it, it is it is difficult when someone is angry at you and you're able to lay aside your emotion uh, because you've dealt with it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Without forgiveness, we don't get to a place of trusted relationship, right? Like Kathy and I have a really, I think, strong relationship, a good friendship where we trust each other. And part of that is because I know if I mess up that I can go to Kathy and be honest about it and tell her, yeah, my intent is different than the impact, um, that we can unpack together what happened and why, and that given time and because of our relationship that Kathy will forgive me. And that builds a place where I can be myself around Kathy. I don't have to... um, I don't have to constantly guard myself because we both know that some of my cracks are going to come out in our relationship. That's part of reality in any relationship. So I don't know. I I think there's really beautiful, obviously, 
uh, gorgeous things about forgiveness. We just have to watch for those who would try and use our God-given desire for forgiveness for manipulation. Absolutely. And, you know, I love what you say there. You, you say, you know, in that moment of asking for forgiveness, like, you know, well, here's my intent, but that doesn't mean I didn't cause harm. Oh. Um, and I think that's, I think that's an important distinction because a lot of people say, I didn't intend that, therefore you shouldn't have experienced that pain. Um, but you're saying, you know, I, I care for you. It was not my intent to harm you, but I see that I've harmed you right. and I'm sorry. Um, and then the next step is don't do that again. Uh, yeah. right, talking about loving another person. If they have uh, told you they don't experience that as love, they don't experience that as blessing, but you continue to do it. That's, that's not loving. That's selfish. Well, you can't kid yourself into saying that I intend well when I, I think the other well. thing drew is it's an enormous act of generosity to tell someone else when they've harmed you. We don't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. But uh, that is an invitation to relationship for me to say to someone else, wow. when you did this, it hurt me is to say to them, do you want to repair this? Do you want to build this relationship and, and fix what is wrong? Because I can choose to not tell you and just go, yeah, I'm not going to trust that person anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's an act of generosity and kindness to tell people uh, when they harm us uh, and even when we disagree with each other. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. I've never thought about it that way as an invitation to restore a relationship. That's, that's great. Uh, as you were talking about peacekeeping, uh, that brings to mind, I, well, you were talking about forgiveness and how it can be weaponized. A lot of times that comes up in racial discussions or other discussions where it's like, you know, let's just move on. You know, let's just yes. move forward. Um, you know, yeah, Why my being grandparents. So sensitive? In, yeah. Um, I never owned but, slaves. Right. Yeah. So why should I be required to whatever? Um, but there is, a, and you get into this in one of the chapters, um, peacekeeping, the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Um, Kathy, can you speak to that? I think that's something you're very passionate about is peacemaking. How is that different from different from peacekeeping? Oh, I think both are hard, <laughs> but peacekeeping can also be just avoiding, right? It's just avoiding. Right. And peacemaking requires effort. It requires that sense of love and desire for relationship. It is an understanding that we are the body of Christ. And how are we going to be at war in our own body? Right. And and I think of the peacekeeping is, you know, something is wrong in your body and you're just going to like take painkillers. <laughs> right. Right. As opposed to doing the harder thing, which is, I don't know, maybe surgery or you name it, whatever. The metaphor can break down at any point. But um, I think that that is the challenge with peacemaking is addressing uh, what caused the, the disruption? What caused the breaking of relationship? What is the context and the nuance? How has the other person been harmed? How have I been harmed? That peacemaking takes time. And in a world like ours, we don't, we don't have the time for that. We, it is, and peacemaking, I don't think in our world, um, 
we don't think of it as benefiting, hmm. right? Um, yeah. In the sense of a world economy, because war is lucrative, discord is lucrative. Even in the churches that hire people to come in and fix things, there is a business there. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very true. Matt, what are your thoughts? Uh, mostly just sitting here going, man, Kathy has good insights. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think peacemaking is about avoiding conflict, right? Not revealing the disagreement. Peacemaking is about changing the world to be a better place. And uh, we would all like to avoid conflict, but sometimes disagreeing in the power of the Holy Spirit requires conflict. And I don't mean in the sense of uh, now I'm going to share the truth with you and you must, you know, cower before it. But in the sense that we have to be honest, Uh, someone critiqued our book and said, why does it? Why does it share negative things about the church? Well, because that's how change is created. We look at who Jesus is and who we are, and we look at the gap between those things and try to figure out how do we allow the Holy Spirit to close that gap, right? Right. Um, So sometimes peacekeepers will say, let's protect the status quo so that no one's fighting. Peacemakers say, how do we bridge the the distance between us and God? Uh, And I think that is a pretty big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it can be experienced as disruptive. You know, when you're actively trying to pursue peace, uh, you mentioned in the book specifically, if you're in a position of power, of influence, if you have acquired wealth in dishonest means to bring about shalom, uh, the, the, the holistic peace, that's not just an absence of conflict, you're going to have to disrupt. You have to disrupt those systems. But people say, oh, you're you're being antagonistic, you're disruptive, you know, um, and look at you as though you don't want peace, but you're actually working towards that peace that's from above. Um, yeah. Right. Well, and even in scripture, you know, if we think about peace as healing, right, bringing mm-hmm. the state of our world to a place where it ought to be. Mm-hmm. And you think and read about the ways in which people sought out healing in their bodies or in the friends who are um, suffering from physical ailments, those interactions were always disruptive. You know, yeah. cutting holes into roofs, um, <laughs> cutting through crowds, right. um, yeah. you know, demon possessed, like Those are not quiet, like, oh, wink and nod and everything's cool. But that desire for community to be healed, for your friend to be healed, for you yourself to be healed, requires everyone else around you to recognize something's very broken. Something's not right. And the invitation is always, how will we, as bystanders not just observe, but participate in this. And so peacemaking involves us. It's not that we just stand on the sidelines and keep the status quo. It is an invitation for us to engage. Absolutely. 
And part of part of your response there, pointing to Jesus and the way he um, brought about disruption and the people that he was healing were being disruptive, <laughs> digging holes in roofs. Um, <laughs> that brings up something that I, I failed to mention earlier. This book is very uh, saturated with Christianity. It is a Christian book. This isn't a self-help book. Yeah. Um, and your your solution to how do we have loving disagreements is the fruit of the spirit. And right. so you go chapter by chapter through the fruit of the spirit. And I just love, um, love that y'all did that. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about why you landed on the fruits of the spirit as the core um, principles of loving disagreement, Matt? Yeah. So so I think what most of us think when you're like, okay, we're going to be in a disagreement, our bar for how we hope everyone will act is we hope we'll be civil, which civil means polite. We hope we'll be nice to each other, even though we disagree. I'm not going to call you names or shout at you. I mean, it seems like a hard ask these days because we're seeing a lot of uncivil disagreement. But right. Kathy and I talked about that uh, as we're discussing this book and Christians are just called to a much, much higher mark than that. We're not even called to civility. Sometimes peacemaking isn't civil, right? right. Um, you can take uncivil action to bring around peace. Um, so, so the question was, if we're not called to civility, if that's not the answer, what are we called to? And we started to look at it and this is the exact context that Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit. in. he's talking about you guys, you guys are, fighting with each other and biting and there's dissension and discord and hatred, which sounds familiar, right? And he says, yeah. that's all because of your flesh. If you were doing this in the spirit, you'd see something else. What would you see? Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? He goes on. Uh, and we were like, oh no, that's, <laughs> oh no, that's really terrible. Uh, that's hard. And of I course it's through the that. Holy Spirit. So Kathy and I, multiple times as we were writing, we're like, oh, why did God call us to write this book? I'm feeling convicted, or we've been in moments of disagreement or difficulty with others. Uh, and both of us are going like, oh, no, Kathy and Matt, the authors of Loving Disagreement, now have to show <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit in this disagreement. And it, it's convicting and difficult and, and, and beautiful and wonderful. Too. I, I think it's I think writing this book has altered the questions I ask myself about if I'm disagreeing well with someone. Excellent. So uh, one of those fruits of the spirit is joy. And that's not one that would come to my mind at the top of the list of <laughs> things to embrace when disagreeing with people. I should be joyful in disagreement. Uh, tell us a little bit about that fruit of the spirit and how that uh, helps inform and, and guide disagreement. So, yeah, I got to write about this one. <laughs> and I forget in the exchange this whether or not this was like, oh, I'll definitely write about this. Or if it was one where like neither of us wanted to write about it. And we were like, uh, heads or tails. Um, so it is challenging because I don't think of being in disagreement as something that is joyful. But in that context, it is a joy to be in relationship with other people in a world that can feel so fractured in a time where so many people, even in their families have felt so fractured in their relationships in a time where just a few years ago, 
we couldn't be in the same physical space with people we loved or disagreed with. The idea that we could spend time to come together, to work our differences out, and maybe never land in a place of full agreement, but enter in with love, that that is a joy. That Mm -hmm. is a privilege. That is something much more than just, oh, I'm really happy because this meal hits the spot kind of moment. (laughs) But it is a deep reminder of God's love for us, right? That that sense Mm -hmm. that he is with us is also in the sense that we are in community, whether or not we are in a time of peace or not. So when I think of joy in that way as a fruit of the spirit, it has to come out. Like Matt and I, I don't know if you noticed, there are moments in this interview we're laughing quite (laughs) effusively because we are in the context of some disagreement um, not with one another, but with others. And and so we're really wrestling through yeah. what we've written and, <laughs> um, and trying to stay in a place that is rooted in joy. I don't like this disagreement. I don't no. like the things that I am feeling or experiencing or have heard. But what keeps me grounded is not whether or not I'm happy about it. What keeps me grounded is that I have found in this place um, deep joy knowing that I have people I can trust who can hold me accountable, who are giving me wisdom and words that I don't want to hear and are praying for me. That's that's where I find the deep joy, not in the I cannot wait to do this out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it is this sense of, okay, even in the midst of this conflict, um, I sense God's provision, hmm. even though hmm. I do not know how this is going to end. Oh, I love that. that. That joy is not happiness. Happiness, dependent on circumstances, joy comes from deep and then can happen in the middle of sorrow. And mm-hmm. uh, you actually asked uh, people, I think through your, um, I can't remember, through one of your social medias, uh, about how they find joy. And they're like watching bees gather pollen, drawing, writing, talking with a friend, commiserating about painful things. And mm-hmm. man, that that's what I hear you saying is like, even in when you're commiserating about painful things, there is a, a joy that is in that moment because there is something deeper that sustains you. Um, I love C.S. Lewis and his conversations about joy and, and George MacDonald, uh, talks about joy is like, you know, native to God's own heart, but he uses a lot of pain and suffering to bring us to that. And I think the the joy comes from seeing, you know, seeing the long, long shot, the long goal, like, you know, Jesus for the joy set before him did what? Have a party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, thank you for that. So in these um, fruits of the spirit, which of these, you think is most understood? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Which one of those do you feel like you have to do more groundwork of explaining? Okay, no, what we really mean is, yeah. Ah, boy. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I think there's several that the English word we use doesn't give the fullness of what's actually being said. So uh, I'll, I'll choose kindness. Um, kindness we think of as being nice, but that's not at all what the Greek word is getting at. What the Greek word is getting at is someone who is seeking needs and fulfilling them with no thought of return. Uh, and that's a really different thing than being nice. So kindness is on the lookout for people who have needs saying, how can I help you? And then, you know, hi-ho silver, they ride away with their mask still on. Um, and can you imagine how different our conversations, uh, our disagreements would be if we were bringing that into them? Uh, this idea of like, we're in incredible disagreement, but I'm looking for opportunities to meet your needs without thinking about how this is going to pay off for me. That's... Right. That's really different than how I typically approach a disagreement uh, and not what I expected when we started digging into this for the book. Yeah. That is how about you, Kathy? Living according to the flesh. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I can point out um, a single one. I think um, I was having a conversation with somebody who had just read the book and um, she was saying how she had not thought of the fruit of the spirit in terms of community. Right. And so it is this sense of like, oh, this is a thing that I have to work on myself. And yes and no, that, you know, again, Paul is writing to the church. Like he's he's seeing this disagreement in the body and saying, all of you, not just one of mm -hmm. you, all of you. And I think that is the the area of opportunity for the Western North American church is that it often is such an individualized faith and right. that we look at the fruit of the spirit, one, as we can pick one and not the other, like a buffet. Mm. <laughs> and the way Paul writes it is, it is the fruit, like singular. <laughs> and here's yeah. the fruit. And this is love, patience, kindness, goodness, um, that you cannot pick one over the other. There are no favorites mm. in this. Um, I think is the challenge, I know for me, um, that I, I can lean towards one a lot easier than another. Like <laughs> patient, patience is really hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> really hard for me. Um, oh. And I think actually kindness is one of those areas where I have been cultured into kind of seeking out the needs of others before addressing the bleeding in my own body or the, you know, plank in my eye. And so, um, so I think that's, that's where I see the challenge in the fruit of the spirit. It, it isn't that yeah. it's one or the other, but like, if I have to do it all, that's really hard. Thank you. I love the transparency of, as practitioners of the fruits of the spirit, acknowledging, Hey, this is tough and we fail at this and it struggles but oh man matt what about you what which fruit of the spirit do you find the most challenging to embody uh, in your life <laughs> i mean yeah i think as kathy just said i don't know if i could pick one that is my most challenging there are several that i find really challenging right. there are a couple that i think i'm more bent toward because of my experience of the lord or because of my whatever it is my experience of christian community i don't know but uh, self-control is a hard one for me. I think the way Kathy frames it in the book has been incredibly helpful. 
So she moves it away from this idea of take like working hard to do the right, you know, to yeah, be controlled in myself. And she places it in community, this idea that we are self-controlled for the good of the community. Uh, that really alters things for me. Um, but yeah, patience. I don't love patience. Who wants to wait around for someone to be transformed or for oneself to be transformed is the worst. I hate it. Um, and we are in a culture that demands, look, immediate agreement or disagreement without nuance. And that is not how patience works. Patience right. says you're wrong right now, but you might be right in 10 years. So we're going to stay in relationship and we'll get there. Uh, wow. And that is, oh man, that is rough. That's hard. I would like everyone to immediately figure stuff out, their stuff. And I would like patience for myself, but I don't want to have to be the one performing patience, if that makes sense. So right. I don't know. Those are a couple of mine. I We could probably go through the list and I could tell you where I fall on each one, but <laughs> you're not my therapist either. So yeah, I appreciate Jill's transparency in that. That's great. But uh, what you said about, you know, how we tend to think, you know, disagreement, let's solve it now. Um, well, that's, that's really tempting on social media. You see some disagreement there. Oh, you want to fix that disagreement. You want to correct that bad theology. You want to correct that bad outlook or, or whatever. Um, I tell, you know, tell me a little I, about disagreements on social media or, or whatever <laughs> your boss is saying. That. Um, I mean, I think Israel and Gaza is this one, uh, I'm not going to say wonderful, is this terrible example right now where there are very hard lines drawn mm -hmm. of what people think you should say and when and to whom and in what place and what it means if you haven't spoken up or if you've spoken up on the wrong side. There are political lines drawn. There are religious lines drawn. There are lines of ignorance drawn. People who just don't know what they're talking about but know that they need to say something. Uh, and so people are harming each other with their words, people who are really yeah. good at disagreement. Uh, because they're folding into one of these camps on a very, very complicated, very difficult situation where many, many people are being harmed and killed and losing loved ones. It's incredibly high risk uh, in this conversation of harming someone with what you say, uh, with your opinions, and we're just barreling into it. And uh, I think so my social media philosophy is that as much as I can control my space, the, not my space, I mean, I'm on my space, but you know what I mean. Um, Are you Facebook, really? Wow. I am, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not like I ever check it, but if you look for Matt Michalotis, you'll find him, or Matt Michalotos, also there. Um, <laughs> the, what, the way I think of it is this, I think of it as my living room, which means the people who follow me and are connected to me, I expect them to behave like they would if I were hosting them all at my house. So if you're going to say something about Palestine or something about Gaza or something about Israel, and I have those people all sitting in my living room, you need to speak in a way that acknowledges the fact that all of us are here. Um, yeah. And yeah, that means a certain level of respect and kindness and love and gentleness, particularly gentleness, maybe. Uh, and that's that's my expectation of others, and that's my expectation of myself uh, when I'm interacting on social media. Do we always hit that? Of course not. Um, but that's where I always go back to. When I'm feeling stuck on social media, I go, okay, what would I say if we were all sitting in my living room? And that often gives me clarity of what I should be saying. That's great. 
Kathy, what about you? <laughs> so I think I tend to have a little different um, personality in general <laughs> than Matt's. Yeah. And, online. I think <laughs> and that's, that's fair. Yeah, and it, it comes out online. Um, uh, on the podcast that Matt and I co-host with our friend JR, we've joked about like who's the nicest, the kindest in the group, and that certainly is not me or JR. It's definitely <laughs> Wait, Matt. That was a um, joke? <laughs> well, you know, um, and and then so we have these these leanings in our personalities, and yeah. so I tend to be a a little more, um, uh, and I think it would it would show up if you were in my living room as well. Yeah, <laughs> it is the conversations tend to be a little um, spicier and feistier, right. and that there tends to be disagreement at my kitchen table amongst friends. Mm -hmm. And there is also the assumption that that is why we are friends, that we mm -hmm. hold these mm -hmm. differing opinions and these conversations are enriching for all of us. And so on social media, it really kind of depends. I mean, I, I try not to feed the trolls, right? <laughs> so there is a discernment on who and how to engage when people come onto uh, your space. And, um, and I am the first to admit that sometimes I want to get the zinger in, you know, I want, sure. I want to, I want to draw first blood. Um, and, and part of it is as well, the way I have been told how I should present myself. And that is not true to my personality. And so I do think that sometimes folks take me as being more aggressive or however you want to call it. Um, but I also invite people to say, you know what, I, I want you to also check what your expectations are of someone like me. When you see mm -hmm. or hear someone like me, what do you think of or how do you think I should behave? I'm guessing that it is not the way I have presented myself. Um, and then ultimately, I say, I have said this for years, how I show up in my social media spaces is the same way I show up in person. It is the same voice I have in my books and on my blog, that it's the same yeah. person. Um, and mm -hmm. there is not a different persona mm -hmm. that is created when I post online. And I would invite anyone who engages in social media to do that. And like, um, what Matt said, like, if you're going to write something, would you say that to the person to their face? Yeah. Right. Say it to my face. Mm -hmm. And if you hesitate even a bit, back off. Maybe you just type it and delete it if it would mm -hmm. help you feel like you processed it. Mm -hmm. But um, that's definitely one of the, the values that I have. The things I say, the things I write are exactly what I would say to people and have said <laughs> in person. <laughs> well, I, I just want to point out that this is really important. I think that Kathy and I in general often have very different approaches to things like disagreements. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Even though we agree on a lot of things, we even those things we agree on, we came to from different places a lot of times. Um, and uh, we both care deeply about Jesus and about community and about trying to do the right thing, living by the fruit of the spirit and disagreement. And it looks different in our lives and that's okay. We have different roles in the body, different social locations, different 
genders, ethnicities, all these things. Uh, and it all plays into how we are able to exhibit the fruit of the spirit best in these moments of disagreement. And it's not about me getting Kathy to do it my way or vice versa. It's about this heart issue of are we connected to the Holy Spirit and is the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming out in the way we're interacting. Excellent. I love that being able to learn from each other. What, you know, For instance, Matt, what have you learned by engaging with Kathy? What have you learned from her in her approach? Oh, I think Kathy helps me be more honest. Um, I think at my worst, I, I am tempted to allow disagreement um, and not share my true opinion or thoughts on things like ambassadorial, I would say, in the if you're trying to say it in a positive way. And there are times when that is right and good. And there are times when that causes harm to me or to the person I disagree with or to those who are eavesdropping on the conversation. And I think Kathy has done a really good job by example and occasionally by telling me um, that uh, that's not always appropriate or the best thing. And that sometimes what I need to do is to be uh, more like Kathy, more upfront with people, more honest about like, actually, I think you've completely misunderstood something. And it's, this is not just a disagreement. I mean, you are wrong. Like, let's dig into that. Um, and that's not like that would never happen. But I think Kathy, Kathy helps me to better discern when it should be happening uh, better than I have in the past. Yeah. Good. What about you, Kathy? Let's flip that around. What have you learned yeah. from Matt and his approach? I mean, with all the joking about Matt being kind, uh, it, it's actually very true. And <laughs> um, my, my experience of Matt is that he is, um, he extends the best of intentions on the other person. He assumes <laughs> the best of the other person. And why are, why are you covering your face, Matt? I'm laughing um, because just yesterday, my wife was like, why do you think people will change? Some of them won't. Yes. And I was like, yes. well, but they yes. might. They might. And I think that that is exactly um, the, the character of Matt that I have learned so much from. Because that is not my natural tendency. <laughs> it is to think of the worst of other people. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it has been so helpful to be um, in relationship, to be friends with Matt, yeah. uh, to sit back and go, you know what? People are not all horrible. Mm. And some of them are. <laughs> but... Yeah. I do not need to walk into life assuming the worst of people yeah. um, that yeah. I, I can assume the best of people and still be honest and truthful when we are in disagreement. That, I mean, I think this is drew you guys talking about unity. This is so important. Kathy and I, when we're together, our strengths multiply and our weaknesses do not. Our strengths for our, each other's strengths counterbalances each other's weaknesses. And I think this is such an important thing that we tend to think that, oh, we're going to come together and make everything worse. But what happens is when we're in, in good relationship, in loving relationship, that our, our, our strengths complement and, and hold each other up. And there are conversations that I shouldn't be in, that I can tag Kathy and say, Kathy, come talk to this person. I'm not the right person and vice versa. Um, that we 
yeah, that unity that we have with each other allows us to be more effective in our community in other ways. Yeah. That's spirit math. Holy spirit yeah. math. The, yeah. the, <laughs> the fruits multiply, the, the weaknesses just seem to fade away when we're together in unity. And that's a beautiful thing. So as you know, uh, this is Common Grounds Unity. Uh, what we love to do is bring people together, especially people who have different perspectives and different uh, opinions. Um, and we believe strongly in the gathering, which is you know bringing people together around a cup of coffee or whatever, uh, because oh man, we've seen so much more healthy engagement when you are face to face. You know, like what we're talking about in social media, it's helpful to imagine. Would I say this in in real life if I was face to face, or mm -hmm. if they're in my living room? Is this a way that I would engage them and and getting together? So, um, gonna let that lead us into as we close out. I've got a couple of lightning round questions that I'm going to ask y'all, and I'll just go. Um, actually, I'll just ask a question and. Kathy, you answer first and then Matt and or cool. however you want to do it. But, um, so if I were to join you, Kathy, in Chicago or Matt, you in the Portland area, where would y'all take me to eat? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I would take you to um, Sogongdong, which is a Korean um, sundubu tofu stew soup place. It's a favorite of our families. They're like so consistent, so fast and um, we're always so full when we leave. Excellent. Oh, I'm looking forward uh, to that. There are so many good places to eat in Portland um, that it, the question would be, how long are you here? But the place I would love to take you is this little tiny Mexican restaurant where when you walk in, they assume you speak Spanish and they just make the best Northern Mexican <laughs> food. It's like amazing. Mm. Um, yeah. So let's go there. Anything on there is delicious. I love it. Yeah. I love it, man. Um, are y'all coffee or tea drinkers? And if, if either one, <laughs> then how do you take it? Kathy, coffee? How do you take your coffee? Coffee. Uh, black. <laughs> Excellent. Good choice. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm the world's most boring drink drinker. I, <laughs> it's true. It is true. I literally, I'm like, do you have water? And they're like, would you like to put lemon in it? And I'm like, uh, I'm not so sure. Does it taste gross? Like, why are you putting lemon in? Um, yeah, I love water. I particularly love Evian. You know, if you're trying to treat me, okay. I really love Evian. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's, I think that's a first. Usually, you know, I think the farthest we've strayed from coffee or tea is like some kind of soft drink. But uh, I legitimately yeah. will drink coffee and tea purely because I'm nice. Like if <laughs> I feel like your feelings will be hurt when we go out to your coffee shop and I don't get anything, I will get a cup of tea. But it's purely for your gotcha. benefit. I do not enjoy it. <laughs> All righty. Fair enough. I think we can still have unity regardless. Uh, <laughs> Name a peacemaker that you greatly admire. Ooh. I, uh, um, I think of, ooh, go ahead. No, no, you go, Kathy. Okay. I think of actually a, a friend um, and somebody I work have worked with, uh, Nikki Toyama-Zito, who mm. is the executive director of Christians for Social Action. And um, her, her leadership, her style of leadership, um, her nuance – uh, her cross-cultural experience um, is one that I have watched and um, continue to learn from. So I think of Nikki quite often. Excellent. 
Yeah, I, I love Nikki. Um, the person I was going to say is someone Kathy and I just met recently. Uh, she is a rabbi named Dania Ruttenberg. I think I think I pronounced that right, Ruttenberg. Um, she's, again, we disagree on a bunch of things. She's devout Jewish. I'm devout Christian. Um, I'm sure we have some differences on some social issues. But what she is so amazing at is seeing what's broken in the world and going after it theologically, philosophically, and through social action. Uh, and I just, I'm so inspired by her. Every time I get one of her emails, I'm like, I've got to read this. Um, yeah, she's an amazing person doing incredible work in the world. I'm so pleased that we even got to talk to her for a half hour. Yeah, she's Excellent. great. Uh, let's do one more and then we'll wrap this up. What is number one on your bucket list? Oh, that's a tough one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I I really want to travel for an extended period of time abroad with just my husband. So like yes. abroad, extended period of time, meaning I've told him like, you have several weeks of PTO banked. When are we going to do this? Um so that, that is a bucket list. Excellent. Hope that works out. Um, for me, the thing I'm working toward that's number one on my bucket list is I want to go to a movie theater and sit down and have the movie start. And it's one that I wrote. Like, that's my Ooh. thing. I want to, like, go hang out at the Regal Cinema and watch my movie on screen, even if I know I'll be mortified, but that's still number one on my, uh, on my bucket list. That well, I'll be awesome. there with you. So yeah. Well, be Kathy fine. being there, that's, that's a given. I'll yeah. fly to where everyone lives to watch it with them as well. Yeah. Be perfect. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for being on this podcast and thank you for the book that you wrote. Um, again, I just, uh, thankful for it personally. And I hope it makes a great impact uh, on our world. Um, I, I know that nobody realizes that there's a need for, you know, us to be able to learn how to have disagreements in a loving way. I mean, there's yeah. so many great role models out there, especially in politics, but yeah. you know, um, as irrelevant as it is, yes. so very yeah. thankful. You know, we're talking the other day, how do we get someone to just buy all these books and send them to all the politicians in DC right now? <laughs> like just as a gift. Right. Yes, please just read it. Yes. <laughs> but yes, very timely. Uh, I know it's always timely, but it just seems like we're just, further and further away from loving disagreement. So thank you for that contribution. Again, the name of that book is Loving Disagreement by Matt Michelatis and Kathy Kong. And I'm so thankful for you joining me. Uh, again, we have a vision here at Common Grounds to create and support gatherings of unity-minded Christians around the globe. Imagine the good news of these gatherings modeling the prayer of Jesus in our divided world. So don't forget, if you are benefiting from this ministry, then please consider a monthly donation. And you can do that at www.commongroundsunity.org backslash donate. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn about who we are and to find gatherings in your area. You can also subscribe to our monthly digital newsletter, join the Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. If you benefit from this ministry, please consider a monthly donation by going to 
www.commongroundunity.org donate. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee. <laughs>